Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, let's be honest. You are an award-winning musical theater director, Richard. I mean, we're just being honest here. Yeah, I mean, that's just, those are just facts, people. Do you have someone that you look up to as like an icon of directing musical theater? That is a great question. I will say it depends, actually. Uh, I don't think there's any director that I said oh, gosh, I really want to match that person's style or sensibility. Mm-hmm. I love Bart Scherer. And Bart oh. Scherer, I think, is like a whiz with the classics because I think That's he's cool. really great at like taking the classics and just blowing the dust off of them, still maintaining what they are and what the creator's intent was, the but just making it yeah. feel really fresh. If it's, you know, I mean, obviously Hal Prince could do anything i mean so it's like definitely a big part of this show that we're talking about today completely and also was a producer he didn't just think with an incredible artistic eye but he also thought in terms of what is doable what is achievable like i don't know if he if that necessarily consciously entered his calculus but it's just there like i ran a theater for a long time i know what these things cost and so for better or worse, I'm always kind of thinking in terms of like, oh my God, am I asking for the moon? And sometimes mm-hmm. yes, and sometimes I'm going to mm-hmm. because I need the moon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those are just facts. <laughs> those, that's, that's just real people. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's necessarily a specific director that I, that I have tried to model myself after because to be re- in all humility, like there are some things I've done where it's like, Nobody would have done that the way that I did that. And I'm really proud yes. of that. You know? And then there are some people like Marion Elliott is amazing. And she makes me want to not direct anymore because she's so smart at every single thing she does that I'm um, like, I never. Confession. I don't know who this is. Curious Incident. Oh. And um, the London Revival of Company that was supposed to open in New York with a female Bobby. Got it. 
Yeah. It's interesting because last week we covered Merrily We Roll Along. <gasps> Who did you do that with? You know that's my favorite show. On I know it's your favorite show. Jen Shelton actually picked it out. Oh, cool. Which I thought was really cool. And anyway, it was, it was really, really fun to talk to her about it. It's amazing. But in talking about Merrily, there were some big, big misses that Hal Prince made with that show originally. Oh, yeah. And then you look at Cabaret <laughs> and you just see like this huge home run and groundbreaking ideas brought to the theater. It's fascinating that one career can have such influences one way or the other, which to me seems like the definition of auteur, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, And in the past, I've said that I think that most auteurs in musical theater are composers or composing teams because they are so intrinsically tied to what material gets chosen and the tone in which it's presented, both from a feeling place and from a hearing place. And yet, Hal Prince makes me think otherwise. Yeah, well, here's what I would say. That's such a great observation. And somehow, as you were saying that, in my gut, I actually think it's weirdly a straight line from Cabaret, you know, through to something like Merrily, because I, I think, and I know we're not talking about Merrily, but here's what happens, no. I think, is that if you're a Hal Prince and you have knocked things out of the park fairly consistently over the course of your career, mm-hmm. there is no reason to think that casting a bunch of 20-year-olds in that show is a bad idea. Right. And I'm, and it's not arrogance and it's not ego. It's just that, like, there is a world in which you say, oh, my God, and I know what we're going to do. To a certain degree, genius requires risk. Absolutely. You know, you look at 19, what is this? The Tony season was 1967 right. for Cabaret. And so you look at what else is coming out that year. I Do, I Do, The Apple Tree, Walking Happy. Those are the other musicals nominated for Best Musical along with Cabaret. Like... One of these things is not like the other, right? I mean, talk about taking a risk, but in this case, it, it paid off. Well, yeah, and the thing is, it's to me, that's so indicative of the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the transition from kind of the early 60s of Camelot and the Dick Van Dyke show, and by the time we were in, you know, 67, 68, 69, we were doing hair. So it's like... <laughs> You're really in this very, very transitional time. And these things, I think, they're not gradual, right? They're not like these even little slopes. They're like these jarring and especially artistically. Like Mm -hmm. you're going to have Robert Mapplethorpe who is like taking pictures of penises and like freaking out the world. But ultimately, like he is pushing things forward. And something like Cabaret, which is sure was like super jarring especially as compared to the apple tree mm-hmm. i do i do for yeah i do i do which is like i mean nice show couldn't be tamer so if you look at something like cabaret which just was like a taser on people that's the beauty of what we do it's open to everybody it's open to every frame of mind and then people either latch on to it or they don't Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about Cabaret with musical theater director and performer extraordinaire. Are you still performing? I am not. Do you like sing around the house and delight everyone? (laughs) 
<laughs> my neighbors love it. No, I don't even really <laughs> sing around the house. I just, I, um, it was a fairly, I would say it was a fairly clean break. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we parted ways. Um, it's Richard Israel, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hi, Richard. Thank Hi, you Jeff. so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Now, um, you are notoriously one of the least social media people I know. Thank you. Yeah, and I say that as a compliment, truly. But like, if I were to say, message you on social media, there is no guarantee that you will see the message, let alone respond. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's absolutely true. Like maybe months down the road when I get reminded that, oh, Facebook is a thing where people can actually contact you and they might need something. But that reminder hits me like once every couple months or so. (laughs) That being said, you've converted a little bit, a little bit. Yes. One of the unintended consequences of a global pandemic. Yeah, right. Now, what is behind this intention? Can you share with everybody? Well, I mean, here's the thing. It's super easy to just watch the news all day and then eat as many carbs as you can to make up for having watched the news all day. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think we're at our laptops a lot. And so I found myself on Facebook much more than I than I have been. And it's it's a wonderland. And it's (laughs) also a cesspool. And again, not like our current political and social situation was news to me. But it was surprising to me how many people I know who know people who are diametrically opposed to where I sit. And, you know, I'm typically someone who I was a canceler before canceling was cool. Like, it's just it's pretty easy. You were the cancel president? Totally. It's always been pretty easy for me to be like, done. So I found myself kind of doing that. And then I found myself really looking at that and examining that and the reality that nothing's going to change if all we do is just cancel each other. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not how societies evolve. And I know that that sounds super lofty. And I make no pretense that I am I am here by evolving society. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we're in a situation where you have to be vocal. I can't help but feel like the answer to tribalism can't be tribalism. Right. And if we're trying to build bridges, then we have to do the uncomfortable work of actually building them. You know, and look, that doesn't mean that you can't be angry and it doesn't mean that you have to be nice because I know that sometimes we confuse being nice with being clear. I'm not saying that, but forcing ourselves awake to that is everything that cabaret means to me. Yeah. Which is why I'm really excited to talk about this show. Also, I mean, do you like cabaret? I I haven't even asked you if you actually (laughs) like the show. (laughs) What if I was like, I think it sucks. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) You saddled me with this stupid show. No, I, I love it. You know that feeling like when you start falling for somebody and like your heart starts racing and but it also feels like your tummies and it's like those weird heart cramps like being Twitter pated. I felt that when I started thinking about this show and I realized like how desperately I missed the magic of what we do. I guess this show is a symbol of that for me and I didn't realize it. I, I, I did it. It was one of the first times I was really cast against type. And I played the MC, and I mean, I, it, it apparently changed my life. <laughs> well, it, I could be wrong about this, but I do think that it's probably a lot of people's first as performers or as, as creatives. I think it's a lot of people's first exposure to a show that is sort of popular entertainment that actually is very political in nature. Hmm. So it's sort of like Spring Awakening, right? 
subject matter, not at all. But vibe-wise, I just know, like, every actor who's ever done Spring Awakening in college, they're like, it's the, mo- it's the most significant show it's ever incredible. in my life. And it is, and it should be, and I directed it, and it was very significant. But I think part of that is that there's an irreverence to it. There's a subversive quality to that show that, like, if you are in that show and if you are sort of at the beginning of your career, there's something, like, super naughty and super, like, I am an artist and I am, Mm -hmm. like, subverting the world. And I think Cabaret is that for for a lot of people because – Again, it sits in this interesting hybrid place where you, as a theater, you can do cabaret and nobody's going to be like, that's a weird little political show. It's like it is a marquee title that people will come see. And it also messes with you. Yeah. You know? That's what I love so much about Candor and Ebb. They are the kings of giving you quintessential Broadway, something that sounds exactly like what your grandparents would listen to, you know, on their compilation of greatest Broadway hits. And yet (laughs) sitting in the theater and experiencing it is something subversive and so much more beyond what it sounds like. Cantor and Ebb, they've cracked the case on that. They do it better than anybody. Anybody. and, And you don't realize it, right? Like, A, what's interesting is I think when people think of Cantor and Ebb, they just think of like... Light and fun. New York, New York. Exactly. Like, that's where people's brains go. But, like, I did a little research. Floor of the Red Menace, Cabaret, Chicago, Zorba, The Rink, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Steel Pier, Scottsboro Boys, The Visit. There is not, like, a crowd pleaser. I mean, there there are accidental crowd pleasers. Chicago is set up as a vaudeville. It is the structure of vaudeville. It lives in vaudeville. Scottsboro Boys, same. It is set up as a minstrel show. And so... If you know anything about that stuff, you're you're having this meta experience of like, oh my god, I'm watching a vaudeville. I'm also weirdly invested in these characters in Chicago cabaret a million percent. Like, I don't know how they'd figured that out, but they did. So let's talk about John Kander and Fred Ebb, who are this legendary musical theater composing team. John Kander from Kansas City, Missouri. So he's a Missouri boy. Fred Ebb, I believe from the East Coast. Yeah. Both educated John Kander meets Fred Ebb through his music publisher. They get put together. They write this song called My Coloring Book, which becomes a huge hit for, is it Barbara Streisand? She covered it. I don't remember who sang it first, but then she she did a cover, and somebody else sort of famously did a cover. It's an amazing song. They work really well together. They're infamously known as a composing team that composes incredibly quickly. They have written songs in 10 minutes that have stayed in shows and become really popular songs. And this is, I think, one of the key elements to what they were able to unlock. They are not precious about their stuff. And even when we're talking about a show as legendary as Cabaret, this is not a musical like Oklahoma where you're going to see a revival and and someone's going to walk out of and say, can you believe what they did to Cabaret? (laughs) Like it... You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my God, a hundred percent. It's not the Bible. You you can kind of do whatever with it, and whatever has been done with Cabaret. Every time that it's mounted, every time a revival comes around, when they did the film, it's a completely re envisioned show. Right. And I think there is something to that in the magic of this songwriting team. It has to be tied to this really great subversive edge that they're able to bring to all of these different stories. Right. Well, and also, I mean, sadly, like, we're never not going to be under the threat of tyranny. 
it Fair doesn't enough. and it doesn't matter who's in the white house like and it's not just tyranny in the in the way of like there is this dangerous leader it it, it it's tyranny just societally mm-hmm. so the reason that a show like cabaret it just it just stays with us and i was thinking a lot about this jeff actually because i keep coming back to shakespeare and i don't i don't make that comparison lightly at mm-hmm. all. And I'm not rolling through saying, well, Cantor and Abbott and Masteroff are the Shakespeare of our day. But the, the parallels are that you can conceptualize Shakespeare. Want to know why? Because it's over 400 years old. It is universally resonant themes. Like, you want to put Romeo and Juliet in an aquarium? Do it. <laughs> because it's like, it's universal themes. And if you want to figure out some 21st century way of like serving that up so that we get it, do it. And weirdly, like Cabaret, for some reason, the way that it hangs together, the way that it's constructed, I think it does hold up to conceptualization within reason. Mm-hmm. Because what it addresses, it's not going anywhere. It's weirdly sturdy. Mm-hmm. It just hangs in there. And a lot of that, I have to say, I'm sort of, I directed She Loves Me before the world stopped turning. And I've always really liked that show. And then once I directed it, I came to love that show. And the reason Yay! that I love it is because of the book. Because Masteroff's book, that guy is so elegant in how he writes. There is not an extra word anywhere to be found. And mm. somehow or other, that guy knows how to get to the core of the human heart with the least number of words, but the most perfectly placed crystal cut words. The language of Cabaret isn't heightened like the language of um, She Loves Me is, but if you look at those book scenes, oh my god, the way the way that he twists lines on each other, I, and again, not take away from the music, obviously, but the mu- like everybody knows the music is amazing. Yeah. But what I think people don't pay attention to is how magnificently elegant that book is. That's fantastic. Just to clue you in, on the podcast... It seems like we're always talking about She Loves Me. I don't know why, but oh, like really? in, in terms of musical theater, it's six degrees from She Loves Me. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so happy because the show is so weird. Right? Who would have thunk? And for a while there, it's been a while since it's come up. And so I'm very excited that She Loves Me is back into uh, the regular fold of episodes. But for a while there, every single episode, some for some reason, She Loves Me came up. But it... It is a really interesting point because it's the first time that Hal Prince, this director that we've been talking about, stepped from producer to director. And then Joe Masteroff, who was the book writer for She Loves Me. And Hal Prince also had produced, not directed, but produced Candor and Ebb's first show, which is Floor of the Red Menace. It's about communism. Liza Minnelli's Broadway debut tears down Broadway with her vocals and, and the rest is history. But that show was a total flop. But he has all of these pieces. He has Joe Masteroff from She Loves Me. He has Kander Neb from Flora the Red Menace. He's wanting to direct more and more. And then this really interesting idea to musicalize I Am a Camera, which was a play based on a, a book of short stories by Christopher Isherwood, all about his experiences as an American writer in Berlin right before World War II. And the idea, the audacity to kind of turn that into a musical, right? All of those players come together and create what we now know as cabaret. 
Hey, everybody. I just wanted to reach out and say thank you to our amazing listeners who took the time to give us a review. Uh, your stars and comments mean the world to me. First up, we got WCDDRR, who said, My favorite listening, the best musical theater-related podcast out there. Five stars. Thank you, WCDDRR. Also recently, we got one from AM Pond, who wrote, 12 out of 10, would recommend... We got a lyricist among us, folks. I also wanted to give a shout-out to Love Dusty, because even though they chose to wait until I made an error to give me a review, they were 100% correct. Love Dusty writes, Act 1 of Merrily, we roll along, does not end with Not a Day Goes By. In fact, it ends with Now You Know, which is a much better ending. Um, number one, you're right. I totally forgot, now you know. And number two, the rest of your review deserves a conversation. So if anybody out there ever has any questions, comments, or concerns about any of my episodes or mistakes that I made, please call me out on social media at a musical podcast or by emailing me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. I will be more than willing to admit when I'm wrong, but then at least we keep the conversation going. That's what we do here. We have conversations. So thank you to everybody for your continued support. And love Dusty, email me now. Have you read any of the Isherwood stuff? Yeah, I actually just reread the Sally Bowles Berlin story. Okay, because Sally Bowles to me is one of the best written characters in musical theater in scenes. 100%, yeah. There's so much information about her from the scenes that then the songs are almost just frosting. Whereas right. so often in musical theater, it's the other way around. Right. How much of that character development is in the Isherwood stories? I will tell you a, uh, a shocking minimum. Wow, really? Yeah, because I was ready. I was like, because I had read Berlin stories a while ago, and I was like, oh, let me just reread just the, the Sally one because it's the, it's, it's the one that in theory I'm a camera is based on. Right. And I reread it, and it's like, no. Her, her sort of like whirlwindness is definitely there. And I have to admit, I, I meant to read I'm a camera, and I didn't. But I'm I'm guessing that the evolution of it is that I'm a camera sort of amplified the stuff that sort of needed to get amplified from Berlin stories and then just cabaret took it the rest of the way. Hmm. Weirdly, John Van Druten, who wrote I Am a Camera, he also wrote Bell Book and Candle, which is the no other way. he did and which is the basis for the TV show Bewitched. Yes. Um, He's an interesting, just really quickly, he's sort of an interesting cat because he was a, a gay playwright in the, in the 50s who was very closeted. And most of the stuff that he wrote has to do with a secret, some mm. sort of piece of difference that has to be kept under wraps. And and there's, you know, a lot of scholarly works about how, like, it was it was just an amplification of sort of what he was going through as, as a gay man in the 50s. But... So, yeah, so good for John Van Druten for seeing something in Berlin stories and saying, I can dramatize that and put that on stage. Mm -hmm. My guess is that it was a fairly big leap from I Am a Camera to Cabaret, where now you're just you're totally reconfiguring things. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you read that at one point, I want to say it was David Merrick, but I could be making that up. But at one point, Kenderneb and Hal Prince were advised to take Jerry out all Robbins. of the uh, Jerry Robbins, thank you. To take out mm -hmm. all the songs that weren't in the in the Kit Kat Club, 
Right. And to just keep it a little more cohesive, all right. of the music only happens in the Kit Kat Club. Right. And fortunately, they did not listen to that advice. It's just so masterful how those songs just, again, it's like they're fun and delightful and they're really tuneful. And But man, if you lean, lean into them for more than eight measures, you're like... Wow, what am I? What am I listening to? Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know, man. They're just real good at that. So true. So Cabaret opens on Broadway. I don't think this is sacrilegious in saying that the original production of Cabaret is not like the best version of Cabaret. Right. It always gets a little bit better. I'm I'm not even going to say that one was the best, but that being said, it changes the game. Some of my very favorite musicals come from the '60s. Fiddler on the Roof being first and foremost. It's my favorite show. And when you look at how that entire opening number is structured, there are a lot of similarities between tradition and Ville Coleman. Right. This idea of a lead character introducing an audience in a very Brechtian, very like breaking the fourth wall way to this world. Basically saying you are welcome here. Right. right? Now, the world of Cabaret has always been much more seedy than Anatevka. <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> In fact, this is sometimes the thing that pushes me away from cabaret is how disgusting it sometimes seems like a game. Like how disgusting can we make this world? Totally. Um, how many heroin bruises, how much snorting cocaine, how much <laughs> like just open humping for everyone to see. Can we shove into one musical? Why do you think that is? Because I have since come to my own conclusions as to what that's all about. I think that, A, I love that you asked that question. B, I love that you and I are of the same mind on that. And here's the thing, because I I could not agree more. And what I think is that, like we were talking about earlier, like cabaret just really lends itself to interpretation and to it's cabaret. So go as far as you can, go as far as you want. When I've seen productions of cabaret that I haven't, totally dug it's a lack of trust in the material right like mm-hmm. i get it i get what this club is so you know and answer the question how many heroin bruises like two or three i don't need any more than three <laughs> but but two's I think, company yeah, exactly three is one too many heroin bruises but <laughs> but because you are diverting my attention away from what i should be placing my attention on which is the the lyrics and the music and the scene work so I have seen productions where it's like, everybody's naked. And again, like, do your thing. But I do think that, that like, as a director, I always feel like I am in service to the creators of this thing. Like, my job is to be the conduit between the writers and the viewers. Hmm. If you're just throwing this in my face so that I don't have to lean into the show, all I have to do is just lean back and let it wash over me. Then when you get to the post-abortion scene, you have no right to expect me to lean into it Mm -hmm. because you have already set up what this is as an experience where I just don't have to really do any work. Right. Your job, I think, as a director is you have to thread that needle and you have to you have to orchestrate how the audience is perceiving and just make sure that when you need them to lean in and listen on a human level, they're doing it, which means all the way back at the beginning of the show in Vilcommon. If you're just too out there and ridiculous, you are making a contract with the audience that then you have to live in when the rubber meets the road. What is that? I'm going to bring now I'm bringing in Maya Angelou. What is (laughs) I know it was only a matter of time. It was a matter of time. Um, What's that Maya Angelou quote about? 
you may forget what a person says or does, but you'll never forget the way they make you feel. Right. And I think that sometimes we go to cabaret and have this very visceral, very raw experience. And then maybe when we try and recreate it later, it's like you do once again, you don't trust the material. And so you're just like working really, really hard to create that raw, vulnerable, vulnerable feeling that you want the audience to have, I guess, forgetting that it's built into the show. Like it's already it's already there. Yeah. Like you have you have to trust that like they knew what they were doing. I just don't think we ever get to subvert the artistic intention of the show. Yeah. You know, fair enough. Fair enough. The other important thing is that there does need to be a seediness to the Kit Kat Club. There needs to be a raw sexuality to the show. And for me growing up in like a conservative place, that is probably why I didn't see Cabaret very produced very <laughs> often. And yet I will stand by it and say that it needs to be produced that way. And here's why. When I did the research on Isherwood and the Berlin stories, I realized, or I didn't realize, I realized by reading someone else telling me <laughs> that so many of the characters that he chose to represent were people that would be directly persecuted by the Nazi regime. So he picked prostitutes, he picked gay people, he picked Jews, he picked people that were most in danger. Right. And to present these types of people in the Kit Kat Club, raucously sexual, perhaps addicted to drugs, and then, of course, in in the subplot of the show, an older Jewish couple, all of these people, as much as you may want to judge them, at the end of the day, you have to then be reconciled with the idea of do they deserve to be exterminated off the face of the planet? Right. And that, I think, is incredibly confronting for an audience, regardless of what they believe. Uh, absolutely. Which is why I kind of have to love Bobby and Victor. Right. I have to be rooting for them. I have to be rooting for the, the people who are existing in that environment. So if you distance me too much from them in service of sort of like shock value, mm -hmm. I think the show doesn't land as as firmly as the show could land. And that's what the, the 98 revival did really well. And part of it was because... Sam Mendes, who is a genius, the fact that the Kit Kat girls were playing their own instruments immediately puts me on their side. Because mm. just as an audience member, I'm like, look at that woman playing the banjo. Like, that's... Um, <laughs> she can sing. She can dance. She's, she's going to drop into a split. She's going to drop into a split. She's got clearing the... at her way out of it. Exactly. Like, she's got the requisite number of heroin bruises, and she... <laughs> Is strumming on that banjo like she was born to do it. And again, because it is a very hardworking ensemble, we are so on their side. And Sam Mendes did such a great job of just making sure that our allegiances were always with the people in the Kit Kat Club. And believe me, like that place was not a library. Like it was plenty seedy, mm -hmm. but you, you were on their side. So that at the end of that show, when you realize, oh my God, I don't know if we're at this part of the conversation, but like... The most masterful part of that show was you seen the band on stage up on a platform for the entire show. And then at the end of the show, you hear the music, but this scrim goes up and it's just a white space. And you know that all of those people have been exterminated. <laughs> and 
it's purely visual. It also completely messes with you because you're hearing the same exact music that you've heard all the way through. So you're just assuming that that scrim is going to come up and you're going to see the band. He's talking about, you know, the girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. And that scrim goes up and it is a white, empty space where all of those living, breathing actor, musician people used to be. And it's like, I, I'm getting chills talking about it right now. Like I Absolutely. saw it, I saw it twice. And even the second time when I knew it was coming, I was still like, <gasps> so like that is called direction and service of what the show is about. And I don't think I had even put this together. <laughs> I always cry on the show. Don't worry. I know. I'm um, so happy because <laughs> you know, I'm a big but, crier from way back. <laughs> but the fact that, uh, sorry, Whew. the fact that it's white is this idea that they think that they've cleaned yeah. the space of yeah. like these wretched people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's, and it's, it is, it is the dictionary definition of void. I mean, when you see that right. and it is inhabited by nothing. Yeah. And that was not in the original. And again, not again, right. not saying one was better than the other, but it is, it not. is, it is a great illustration of how somebody with vision can take what is on the page and amplify it in a way that, you know, that was 1998, this is 2020, and you and I are still crying about it. So yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> crying about talking about it. Right, so, I'm not even seeing it. So, so it, that's, it, that's like, I mean, it, it, again, that, that's what art can do, and that, that's what musical theater uniquely can do. Um, yeah. I, I believe, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it. And Cabaret, it, I was thinking about this too. Cabaret is a show that really does consistently pull the rug out from under us as an audience, Oof. like yeah. in the best way. And it's hard to do that, man. It, it is hard to dramaturgically defy expectations. You can do it maybe twice <laughs> successfully, but they yeah. do it all the time, you know? That's a good point. And they do it in ways it's Almost like, every number. Absolutely. And- and, you know, that brick comes through the window. Like, you think that that Ugh. Schultz and Schneider have fixed it. And just like the world, a brick comes flying through the window. And it's and it's like, no, it is not fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, what's his bucket? Ernst takes mm-hmm. off the overcoat and there's a swastika. I didn't see it coming. Yeah. And I know the show. But right. I, like... And I knew he was a Nazi, clearly. I mean, I knew he was running money for the Nazis, but nope, didn't didn't see the armband coming. Like, you just don't see these things coming, and that is how the world works. And that is also how things like Nazism work, is that it's you don't see it great, coming. and it's great, and it's great, and then it's terrible. Or right. it's we it appears to be great. We tell ourselves it's great. We willfully make ourselves ignorant until it finally, a brick comes through the window. You know, so that I mean, that's yeah. why the show. Here's what I believe. I believe that after everybody cycled through Mamma Mia, when the world starts turning again, I actually think a lot of people are going to start doing cabaret because it's because this notion of how we choose to blind ourselves to things until they're right in our own backyard. Like this is what much of the country is doing right now. Yeah, and everybody should be revisiting the show. And I do think like it's going to bubble up. I think more as we have to reflect on what this time has done to us as a society and how we have been complicit in our willful ignorance, you know? Yeah. Because that's happening all over every day. Yeah. 
I love what you said, because we are currently suffering consequences. They may not be as uh, easy to define as the Holocaust, but emotionally, I know that there are consequences. Oh, absolutely. The idea of having leaders tell you that you can only succeed if you are a bully. Right. Those hold real consequences. And to convince yourself otherwise is just waiting for something like this to to wake you up. Absolutely. And the, and it's sort of like the blessing and the curse of being human, right? Because we're we're really adaptable. So mm-hmm. we are as a species. Have you seen my 600 pound life? <laughs> the body is incredible. It's just like, oh, I guess I'll make more room. That's fine. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. I'm glad that worked its way into this conversation. <laughs> my Angelou and my 600 pound life. You're very good at your job. <laughs> um, but it's true, like like it it we we are adaptable, and that's and thank God for it. But the the problem is that it is it, you know it's the frog in the boiling water. The frog doesn't know that the water is getting untenably hot until the frog is dead, because right. the frog adapts. So what we are doing because we kind of have to, I guess, is like for myself. Well, you know, just being honest is that I you know I'm terrified. I'm 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 not you know I wake up and I'm scared a little bit just because it's like I don't know how this is going to work itself out and I don't know if we are permanently damaged as a country as people who live in this country I'm not I don't know that the 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 rending of us is going to is going to knit itself together but because I'm a human being I have to get up I have to make coffee I have to go for a run and then I have to get to emails because I can't live in like pe- t- paralyzing fear. Like I just, I can't, I know yeah. some people do and I, my heart goes out to them. I just right. can't. And by the same, but the flip side of that is that I'm making my coffee. I'm going for a run. I'm checking my emails. What does that mean? Does that like on some level? Yes, we do need to pay attention to that fear and we do need to try to channel it into something because on some level, that's what the Germans did in the 30s mm-hmm. is they made their coffee and they went for runs and they didn't check their emails, but they, you know, went to the <laughs> post office or whatever and they lived their lives. And and it's like I – so yes, we do have to live our lives because otherwise we'll just become paralyzed and like, you know, in a fetal position in the corner of the room. But but we can't ignore you know, we, we do have to listen to that fear and we do have to figure out, okay, what do I, what do I do with this so that I'm not, I'm not somehow complicit and the answer is different for everybody. And that's cool. Yeah. Like that's absolutely, you know, different people have different resources at their disposal to, to make that happen. But, but I think getting back to cabaret, not to be gross or soapboxy, but it, it it's the power of musical theater that I would contend and I will fight anybody on it. But I just do think that, that because musical theater lives at a certain height that it threads the needle between, you know, it's like you never ask why the person's singing if it's done properly. Mm-hmm. So it lives at height, but it also lives at humanity. And so it, it's able to take on something like the rise of <laughs> Nazism and do it in a way that as an audience member, I listen and I have I have been entertained and illuminated and educated and slapped in the face I don't know, man. I don't know what other art form does that. I really, I really don't. Like, I know I'm being Thank a gross you. musical theater person, but I just like. Well, you're on the right program to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you asked me on, and not some visual art <laughs> podcast. That would have sucked. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Richard Israel. Let's talk about. 
basket weaving. And you're like, musical theater! (laughs) Nobody sings in basket weaving. I mean, they can, but they don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) To your point, though, about how different people react differently. That's one of the things I think Cabaret does so well, is that you have these different characters all reacting to what's going on around them differently. And it's both entertaining and enlightening. And so I'd love to talk through the show and these characters. Great. To just kind of identify some of those differences. At the very beginning, like we said, during this Phil Coleman number, we have uh, the MC who steps forward and is welcoming the audience into this Kit Kat Club, which is also incredibly symbolic because the Kit Kat Club itself is symbolic of what is happening outside of it. It's it's this great kind of meta moment in musical theater. Um, how would you describe the MC? Because he is a character unlike any other in musical theater. Yeah, I mean, he's totally Brechtian, right? He talks directly to us. He's not bound by time and space at all. He's yeah. sort. I mean, in theory, he's sort of our Sherpa through the show. I mean, he brings us into the world and he takes us out of it. And he's yeah, <laughs> he's sort. He's sort of like the spirit guide of the show and is also, you know, just in, I I think he's sort of the personification of just like the, oh, I don't want to say decay, but just like where Berlin was at that particular time. And so he's sort of the personification of that, you know, in varying levels of danger. It's so true. He's both godlike in that he seems to be a puppet master of this area that he has welcomed us into. And yet at the same time, is completely fallible. He seems to, like you said, deteriorate with the society. He is not immune from the consequences of the place where he where he lives. Right, absolutely. We sort of think he is because I think we consider like, oh, there's no way that our friend who's guiding us through this, anything bad's going to happen to him. Right. You know, right. we just we think he's godlike to to your point. So so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a masterful masterfully put together character it's set in 1931 berlin they're coming out of a huge great depression right they uh, created an entire new constitution which is where the weimar republic came from out of that is how the third reich gains power when hitler rises to being the dictator and he's promising essentially a way out of this disgusting way of life right yeah Meanwhile, you've got really interesting, weird kind of artistic people living in Berlin in the underbelly who honestly don't really feel like that has anything to do with them. Because when you are an ignored person in society, let's be honest, you're used to people not looking out for you. Oh, sure. So you just assume that anything to do with the bourgeois has nothing to do with you. Right. The other thing that's really quickly that that really helped propel Hitler to power was... Germany was so demoralized after World War One. Oh, um, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, course. and and the world really, really punished Germany. Like the re- the reason that they entered into the depression was because the world demanded astronomical rep- financial reparations from Germany after World War One. And mm. so, as an as a nation, they they were completely demoralized. So what Hitler also promised them. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but obviously sure. there was reason for it. He promised to make Germany great again. If you listen to some of his speeches, it was all about restoring the German people to their rightful place in the world because they and honestly, been... who doesn't want that? I know. Right. Um, so it was very much about that, about taking this people who had been. And again, like I, I don't I'm not blaming the world for forcing Germany to make reparations, but yeah. they just kind of 
really crushed Germany under the world's heel. Mm -hmm. And so the German people as a nation, they were just feeling so downtrodden and Hitler knew exactly what to say and he knew exactly how to appeal to their sense of victimization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the world was not on their side and the world was mistreating them, but he alone could bring Germany back to its former glory and and um, make the world pay attention to Germany. So that was a huge part. Like he told the people what the people needed to hear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of, one of his masterful things was as an orator, he just, he knew how to burrow right into people's pride and really capitalize on that. So that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think I realized that in, in those words. After we meet the denizens of the Kit Kat Club, which include a lot of the Kit Kat Club girls, and they have interesting names and backstories, of course. Who knows if they're true, but that's like their personas that they're bringing to the table. You've also got Sally Bowles, who is not German. She is an English cabaret singer who is kind of a headliner at the Kit Kat Club. I always love that traditionally she's been cast as someone who's not that great of a singer. Right, right. Because if she was an amazing singer, I mean, with the exception of Liza Minnelli, like, what would she be doing in the Kit Kat Club in Berlin? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. Like, her talent has to be commensurate with where she's performing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sally is someone who's a total mess and yet totally lovable. She's dating the, the owner of the club, Max, right? Right. And I think she's just charismatic, right? I know a lot of people who, who think, oh, they're charismatic because they're not super talented. Um, mm. <laughs> she, and she just knows her audience. And yeah. she is. I mean, she's very, she's charming and racy mm -hmm. and knows how to appeal to her audience. And has like a little fan club who loves Sally at the Kit Kat Club. So, of course, like she's happy being that big fish in the pond. Sure. Enter... What's his name? Cliff. Enter Cliff. <laughs> what's who's that guy? Enter that, that what's guy, his Cliff. name? He <laughs> He's an American writer who's come to Berlin, which is where like the whole I am a camera comes from, right? That right. Cliff is coming as an observer to write about what he sees. And on the train he meets meets this guy named Ernst who's looking for English lessons. Cliff as an American can teach English, so they kind of strike up a friendship. Ernst also gives him the name of uh, an older woman by the name of Fräulein Schneider, who owns a, what is it? Like a, like a housing house. Yeah. Yeah. Like a boarding house. house. And she doesn't charge all that much. So he'll be great to go there. Before he goes there, though, he goes to the Kit Kat Club. And the Kit Kat Club has this really cool thing where there are phones at the tables and they like call each other, which I think is kind of cool. I want to do, I, I actually, quick sidebar. Someday after I open my Equity Scab Playhouse, I want to open up with um, Merrily We Roll Along. With Merrily We Roll Along every season, um, <laughs> I want to open up a really nice bar with tables and call it Isherwoods, and have each of the tables have a phone on it. So please don't steal it's that copy idea. Copyright. <laughs> it's Richard Isherwoods. That's, That's great. If, if I if I find a, a fancy bar with tables and phones called Isherwoods, I will find you. Um, <laughs> we'll track you down. I will. But anyway, so yeah. That's a great idea. And actually, it is something that seems really cool about the intimate nature of the club right. is that you can kind of hit on anybody you want and you don't have to walk up to them. It's, which is why my idea is going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make so much money. But of course, you'd have to sanitize the phone after you use it. <laughs> That's right. You're right about that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, maybe I won't do it in the next year. <laughs> So Sally sees Cliff 
sitting over at the table and uh, calls him up. Originally, there was a song here called like the telephone song. There was. And yeah. it's since been cut, but uh, it kind of sounds like a PG-13 version of Telephone Hour from Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, it was probably not even as interesting as that. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was sort of a number that yeah. was like everybody sort of calling like an each other ensemble on the phone. Number. And then there was like a dance. It was, it was a whole thing. So I don't, I don't think it's missed. It's not necessary. Not really. What, what is necessary is that Sally calls Cliff. They have this conversation in which she asks him to re- recite poetry because he's got this American accent, and so he does Casey at the Bat. <laughs> and there's this whole there's this whole connection. There's this little spark. She tells him that she's taken because of Max, but maybe he tells her where he's staying. And when he goes to Fräulein Schneider's, she ends up showing up at his place. Sally Bowles does because. She and Max have had this huge fight, and so she's kind of invited herself into his life, which means they need to convince a very conservative person like the older woman, Fräulein Schneider, to let both of them stay in the same room when they're not married. And if I could really quickly just yeah. point out, because so, so much of the show is about compromise, which weirdly, merrily, is also about compromise. <laughs> um, I know, I keep coming back to that, but like, and Cabaret is all about how small compromise become a very slippery slope, small compromises. So it's like on the train between Cliff and Ernst, Ernst actually sort of like sends one of his briefcases, he puts one of his briefcases next to Cliff so that it doesn't get caught by the um, border control. Oh, right. And Cliff could very easily have called him out, but he doesn't. Mm. And then Cliff goes and takes the room at Fräulein Schneider's and he's like, I'm going to work. He sets up his typewriter and then he's like, no, I'm going to go to the Kit Kat Club, mm. club Compromise. Yeah. Then Schneider says, no, I will not have a man and a woman living in sin under my roof until she gets 80 marks to do it. And then she says, okay. You and have you the money. S- you have the You're money. Right. Sure. You're so right. This is true. So you can see over the course of the show how all of these people make these tiny little compromises. And, and, and those compromises just like chip away at the entire society until finally 6 million Jews are being killed. So wow. it's it's really like I, I love the show because of that, because it's filled with those things. She sings this song called So What, which is actually a perfect thing for her character and for the situation. And it's like, well, that's the rally cry of a society that's hurtling towards tyranny. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> It's really fascinating to hear people try to applaud after that song. Yeah. Because like, what a button. So what? <laughs> it's like a song about apathy. OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. weird. And honestly, you know, in musical theater, we have the secondary characters. We have like a a B-plot, a subplot. And the main relationship in the show is Sally and Cliff. But then we have the secondary relationship, which is an older couple, Fräulein Schneider, who owns the the rooming house, and one of her tenants by the name of Er... Uh, Herr Schultz. Schultz. Herr Schultz, thank you. And honestly, it's my favorite secondary... like. Get out of here, Ado Annie Will Parker. <laughs> <laughs> this like B storyline adds so much to Cabaret yeah. because for all of the drama and dysfunction of Sally and Cliff, you have this great contrast with this older couple right. having their own experiences. And uh, it's 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 so great. And if they had followed Jerome Robbins' idea of not having any music outside of the kick club totally this this storyline would have been completely eliminated which is ultimately what happened in the film 
And I mean, that storyline carries a lot of dramatic weight. I mean, oh. with without them, uh, there's very little heart. Absolutely. Well, yeah, but and you're also missing like a lot of plot about Fräulein Koss sort of calling Schultz out for being a Jew. And then Fräulein Koss, that- also one of the other roommates, or not roommates, but one of the other tenants at the at the boarding house. Right. She is a well-known. Pro- Everybody knows that she's a hooker. <laughs> And that's another thing where Fräulein Schneider's like, oh, you, and I'm going to wag my finger at you because I have morals. But at the end of the day, she pays her rent, so she lets her stay. So, yeah, I mean, it's weird because I do think that, like, to the naked eye, you don't realize how important Schultz and and Schneider are just in terms of, A, they are a huge part of the heart of the show, but B, the descent into the rise of Nazism, they carry that storyline very much on their back. So they're kind of important. For sure. As all of this action between either Fräulein Schneider and Er Schultz or Sally and Cliff happens outside of the Kit Kat Club, we then go back inside the Kit Kat Club where the MC will lead the ensemble in some sort of number that comments on the action that we just saw. In the case of Fräulein Schneider and Er Schultz falling in love with each other, this older German woman and an older Jewish man... In the second act, they do this uh, number called If You Could See Her, right. in which the MC is trying to convince everybody that they should love his newfound fiance, who is a dancer dressed up like a gorilla. So like the symbolism of how ridiculous that is, in contrast to the prejudice of what is facing the actual relationship outside of the club. Right. Just the, these incredible metaphors and, and great... And yet really entertaining numbers at the same time. Sure. But again, like that's one where they pull the rug out from under you because you're watching it and it's the MC dancing with this gorilla in a tutu and you're like, oh, it's hilarious. And and you don't equate it to the Schultz and Schneider stuff in your brain. Until, until oh, until you're the so very right. end. At the very mm-hmm. end when he says, if you could see her th- through my eyes, she, sorry, I'm going to cry. If you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. And then as an audience member, you're like, wait, what? <gasps> it's and a, you, all the they, air gets sucked out of the room. Right. And this bomb drops on you and you go and also you also feel super betrayed by the MC if it's done right because he's been like your friendly neighborhood like he's the guy I'm supposed to be following and with and then Mm -hmm. he says that and you're just like oh I feel totally betrayed by you and now I don't quite know what to do and by the time at the point in the show when that happens you as an audience you're like I don't know what is what which is in the best way (laughs) it's true okay who, who, let's see, what else do we need to talk about in terms of the plot? Sally and Cliff are living together. Everything's great. I think they start, I think we are to understand that they start sleeping together, which is sort of weird in that there have been intimations that Cliff is bisexual, if not gay. Yeah. They actually took out any specific references to his bisexuality in the original version. Right. But as times changed, they started putting them back in. Right. Because he does flirt with some of the boys at the Kit Kat Club. And the only thing that's kind of left over in the original is the fact that they do two ladies. Is that the MC and these two females sing about their their perfect relationship that is actually a threesome. Right. Um, that was kind of as far as they could push it. Right. Although between the, the 93 and the 98 Mendez, they changed two ladies was the MC and a guy and a woman. And a guy and a woman, right? Yeah. I think like Bobby or Victor, one of the club boys may have been performing in drag. Is that right? Yeah. I think if memory serves, I think so. But you, it was a guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, exactly. 
now we do get to see the courting of Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. And it all happens over a pineapple. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That Somebody should write a show about Cabaret, and that should be the title. It all happens over a pineapple. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's such a sweet moment because he brings her this pineapple. And it's this beautiful little scene song in which you see this older woman blush and become a young girl again. And right after that is a Nazi soldier singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me. So there's always this doom following the hope of this relationship. Uh, It happens here in the pineapple scene, and then later in Act 2, when they're talking about getting married, they're engaged, it's going to happen, and then a brick gets thrown through their window. All of those moments are interrupted by the reality of, of what's going on around them. What's really interesting is that originally Cliff would sing a song called Why Should I Wake Up? Right. Kind of around this point, which is I'm having such a wonderful time with Sally. Everything's fine for us. But then, of course, it's also a great symbol for everyone else around them. And also that's right around the time where Sally reveals that she's pregnant. Correct. And then that's where she sings maybe this time where you really start to invest in her because she we invest in people who hope, right? That's why you start a musical with an I want song so that we invest in you as somebody who is aspirational and is trying to achieve something. And that's the first time that we actually see Sally as somebody who is more than just like green nail polish and a bob wig and like B minus level talent. Mm -hmm. Um, But as somebody who actually wants something real and it's become this really anthemic song and it should be, but there's, there's also something so great about how that song changes our mind about her as somebody who is to be taken seriously. Regardless of what the dream actually is, whether or not like Sally Bowles is going to end up with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids, the idea that she believes in her ability to self reinvent Mm. that like you, we can all latch onto that. Right. So we've looked at her as somebody who's sort of like, I'm having a great time and I'm good the way it is and everything's great. And then we finally, and then she finally is like, maybe this time, It's a moment of honesty for her because she's saying maybe this time I'll win, which then infers that she's always felt like a loser. Right. So, yeah, that's a a confession in and of itself. And I can't picture the show without it. And they did the show without it. Right. Didn't come into the cabaret until the movie. Right. Thank goodness it did. (laughs) When Fräulein Schneider and Eric Schultz announced their engagement that they have like these intentions to, to be married, they have a party. And Cliff and Sally bring a bowl, like a beautiful bowl for them. And they're having a great time. Air Schultz gets a little too shwasted. He drinks a little too much. <laughs> and starts acting in a way that people find offensive, especially if you're if you don't like Jews. Well, I think if memory serves, he's tipsy and he's being a little bit loose with himself. Mm-hmm. But I think when it really hits the fan is Ernst is there and he reveals the armband, which, you know, like freaks Cliff out a little bit. And then Ernst is dancing. This is so chilling. Ernst is dancing with Fräulein Kost, the prostitute who lives in the boarding house. And they do start talking about like, like Schultz's behavior and he's a little bit tipsy. But what, what does it is that the party, there's all of this great food at the party. And Ernst kind of says, wow, this is an amazing party so much food so much drink and cost says well he could have afforded 10 times as much you know the jews have all the money and ernst has not been aware that schultz is jewish and so 
there's a confrontation. Uh, not really a confrontation. Ernst is like, I have to remove myself from this party. I wasn't aware that this was being hosted by a Jew, and I need to leave. And he goes to leave, and Fräulein Kost brings him back by singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which we've which heard the previously. Heard. Right, the song that the soldier sang. And so she starts singing it, and it's this really interesting dichotomy where she is a prostitute. Like, she is not, like, a paragon of German propriety, yeah. but she is one of the people. Mm-hmm. But she starts to sing the thing, and then everybody at the party joins in, and it becomes this, like, Nazi creed sort of thing, where all of these people who have been at the party, and then you realize, wait, 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 like, when the chips are down, Act 1 actually ends with Tomorrow Belongs to Me, and it's Cliff... Sally, Schultz, and Schneider just like looking at this in horror. And that's where you end act one. So it's like, oh, this is where we are. Everybody knows that it's his engagement party now, now that Ernst does. And they have taken it over. Right. Yeah. It's it's genius in its construction. Act two begins with a, a kick line. There's an extra chorus girl by the name of the MC. And in a great feat of staging symbolism, the kick line turns into a goose step. Sally is still pregnant. Cliff is looking for more money. And Ernst gives him the opportunity to make a little bit of money. This may have actually happened in Act 1, now that I think about it, by taking one of his suitcases, like he did in the first scene, and illegally transferring it. He doesn't know what's in it, but just that it needs to somehow get across a border. And in doing so, he'll make a lot of money. Yeah, I think at the party, that's where Cliff is like, I want nothing. Like, you're wearing an armband. I want nothing to do with you. That's true. That's exactly right. Ton of money in it. And Cliff is like, absolutely not. And so in act two, Sally is like, just do the run for Ernst. Like, we have have no money. We have a baby on the way. You should do this. And Cliff is like, do you read? (laughs) Are you aware of what is going on around you? And she's like, I just, I'm not interested in politics. And I see no reason so it's, it is like a place where Cliff actually does not compromise. He's like, mm-hmm. I am not going to run money for the Nazis. Like, hard stop. And in doing so, he drives Sally out and also gets the crap beat out of him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cliff is like, we're going to America. I'm, take, I'm taking you home with me. And Sally's like, I'm not going to America. And they have this huge fight in which Cliff does say, Sally, wake up. Because Sally's thing is, I can't leave my career. And Cliff is finally like, what career are you what talking career? about? You're like a you're like a third-rate singer in a fifth-rate club, and things are getting terrible, and I am taking you out of here. So they, they have a nasty, nasty fight. He runs off. The MC comes on and sings, I don't care much, mm-hmm. which is basically a commentary on sort of where Sally is at emotionally in terms of she has a decision to make here. And um, do you know that that song was originally written... Like, Kander Neb originally wrote, like, the Berlin songs, where, like, Cliff was going to come into Berlin and see all of these different characters singing a song, and I Don't Care Much was written for a prostitute. No way. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I love that. And then it was repurposed for the MC to be singing it. In, totally, in many totally. ways, he is Sally. If it's done right. So, yeah, so they have that big old fight. He runs out, she runs out. Uh, they both end up at the Kit Kat Club. Cliff gets the crap beat out of him. She sings Cabaret. She sings the Cabaret, title which, you know, is sort of like her rally cry to herself about, I have no interest in change and I'm mm-hmm. just going to stay here and I'm going to live in my ignorance. Yeah. What it does for Sally's character is what it has done for musical theater audiences 
as a whole. You get a compilation, like I said, one of those CDs that my grandparents would listen to. You better believe that Cabaret is on there as one of the all-time best songs to come from a musical. But then, like you said, you take a second (laughs) to think about what it's actually saying and then even putting it where it lies in the story. Why on earth is this song? A feel-good number. <laughs> totally. And that's, I mean, that is the genius of Candor and Ebb, is that if you that's remove the them from their context, you are like, that is a delightful song. Yeah. And then if you place it in its context, that's why what, you know, just really quickly, sidebar is like, that doesn't really work with Sondheim because Sondheim songs are so contextual. Like yes. they are, they are inextricably linked with what is going on in the show. So it's like... Sondheim's had very few back when a Broadway a song on Broadway could become a hit. Sondheim had like Send in the Clowns, and that's kind of it. Yeah. But Candor and Ebb, so many of their songs crossed over because you could just listen to it in your 68 Impala and be hey, like, hey. oh, this is great. <laughs> Not realizing that it's a song about a woman deciding to have an abortion. So ah! <laughs> Right. You're exactly right. So that's the genius of Candor and Ebb. And that's her decision. That's what she decides to do. She goes and has an abortion. She shows up. Cliff is all beaten and bruised from his confrontation with Ernst. He's packing. And when Sally comes in, he's like, thank goodness you're here. Let's go. Let's do this. And she says, I had an abortion. And he slaps her. Right. This scene. This mother effing scene. (laughs) Um, And it's just a scene. They don't have a song with it. Who needs one? Right. Because there's nothing to sing about. And I think that that's ultimately what what we get from the demise of this relationship is that it's sterile and lifeless and everything that the society around them has become. Right. I love that. That's so smart, Jeff. It's it's perfect scene. And it's another example of how she never says, I had an abortion. What she says is, I left my fur coat at the doctor's office. (gasps) Oh! And Cliff says, were you sick? And she says, no. And then there's a little bit more very economical conversation. And then she says, oh, that greedy doctor, I'm going to miss my fur coat. And that's what makes him slap her. Oh, my gosh. You're so right. Yeah. Because she's cavalier about it. It's her cavalier attitude towards it that tells Cliff exactly who she is and is always going to be. Yeah. And then uh, my favorite, my favorite part of that scene, it's such... What I love is that, again, it's Master Off, like, he writes like they would talk, but he does it. There's such an elegance to that scene. I've directed the scene a number of times, and I don't know that it ever gets yelly, screamy, because I think they're sort of past that. But when when Cliff sort of finally realizes who she is and what she's done and that this is doomed, and he sort of goes back to the baby, and he sort of says, but if, if we'd had the baby, and she cuts him off and she says, a baby to keep us together... What a terrible burden for an infant. And he has lost the argument because she's totally right. Like the whole thing was ridiculous. The whole construct of them having a baby, and the be happy together, the fantasy, like those two people were ever going to end up together. But because it is masterful musical theater writing, we believe they're going to end up together. We are rooting for them to end up together. We somehow believe that Sally, that leopard is going to change its spots. Mm-hmm. She sings maybe this time, which tells us that she might just change her spots. We want her to get out of out of Germany because she's going to be one of the first people to go. And they mess with us. They totally mess with us. 
And then in that one scene, which is not a very long scene, we realize she will never change. He will never change. A baby was not going to fix this. And that as tragic as it is, she's going to stay in Germany and probably should. And he's going to go back to America and he probably should. So it's so heavy with sadness for the audience because we're like, this is inexorable. There was no fixing this. Mm -hmm. There's no fixing the oncoming storm of what's about to hit Germany. You're not just feeling for these two people. You're just feeling for like the world because that's what that represents. To wrap up Air Schultz and Fräulein Schneider, she breaks things off with him and he moves and he has this last encounter with Cliff where he's like, everything will be okay because I am German too. I may be Jewish, but I'm also a German. <laughs> ah, I'm crying again. <laughs> and it's like, and there's no way that my people would do that to me. Right. And then they do. And he, and he moves just to a safer part of town. Like he doesn't leave Berlin. He just, he just right. moves to a little bit of a, of a safer part of town. And it's like, you and and, and the, the scariest part for me is as I was sort of rewatching it was he says these things pass they always do and it's like no they don't they don't mm -hmm. always which again like going back to my you know daily waking up in fear it is like I understand that where we are at from a health crisis standpoint yes I do believe that that will pass but in terms of like where we are as a sundered nation I I am not always convinced that this mm -hmm. too shall pass because sometimes it doesn't, you mm -hmm. know, some, sometimes it ends in a world war and sometimes it ends in 6 million Jews and millions of gypsies and people who were not Jewish, but also were not Aryan, like 20 million Russians, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it doesn't always pass. So anyway. Right. And at this, this low point, <laughs> I mean, can it, can we get to any lower point is the moment that they reintroduce the music that we heard at the very beginning. And then, of course, we know how it ends. Right. It's Cabaret is, I think, maybe the only show I know of, honestly, where by the end of the show, we are so fraught with what ha what we've just been through. But it's not about what we've just been through, but also about like the car ride home mm -hmm. and how we are looking at each other and our lives and all of that stuff. Like if if it if we've been paying attention, like... This show is unique, like it's its own thing. You know, in terms of the car ride home, I was thinking this morning about how how opinionated we can be as theater goers. <laughs> and I just thought about if we go and see a production of Cabaret and the ride home, all we can talk about is whether or not we liked Sally Bowles. <laughs> to me, it feels like going to church and coming out hating gay people or criticizing them. I know that it may be, seem like a false equivalency, but it is based in the same patterns. When what we do takes precedence over who we are, we have lost ourselves. And if you go to a piece of art that has been created and presented with the intention of inspiring us and making us look at who we're surrounded by and where we live in a different way, if we have taken that and polluted it because we don't want to be brave, um, and it's much easier and much safer and much more Sally Bowles to stay in our manageable fishbowl, then we're really lost. And I don't know, I feel like that's just what I want to encourage us as a podcast family. <laughs> <laughs> 
we can't really do theater right now, but we can set up those patterns that when theater comes back, we are the kind of audience that is brave enough to look inward instead of criticize outward. Yeah, I oh, amen, brother, because musical theater, like, it's a nuanced art form. And so I, th- I think that it allows us opportunities to do that in a way that we would be foolish not to take advantage of. And like, I do think as, as crappy as this particular time in our lives may be like, it does offer us an opportunity for some self-reflection and, and to at least ask some questions about how is our art intersecting with our audience? And is there more that we could do? I think that would be a great unintended consequence of all this. Yeah. Yeah. And you are someone who I deeply respect and whose work I love. So I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you. Likewise. As always, if you have recommendations for shows that we cover here on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. And while you're at it, head over to our T public store where you can find lots of great designs based on great moments of episodes past and present. Richard, how can we follow you and what you're up to? You have a great website. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, you have no idea what that means to me because I basically have torn out much of my hair trying to get that thing <laughs> into some sort of shape. Um, so it's like yeah, a great reel to see all of your all of your work. It's cool. Thank you. Oh my god. Honestly, you said exactly the right thing. <laughs> I just need everybody to compliment me. <laughs> yeah, richardisraeldirector.com is where you can find out more about me. It's just super quick. I I you know, it's like the up next section is looking a little bleak right now, but I have to remind myself that it's looking bleak for all of us, so it is okay. For sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's where you can can find out stuff and you know i i do i do post fairly regularly about little known musicals that were sort of overlooked on my facebook so if you want to check that out once every three or four days i just pop off with some weird little musical that ran for three performances in like 1992 that was actually awesome so um those are up on my page as well fantastic i adore you thank you again and to everybody out there wake up I don't know. I guess that's how I'll end it. <laughs> that, no, that, that, that made me super happy. So you've got th- this audience of one thought that was amazing. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.